This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tari. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. What are some of the key features and characteristics of the Muslim feminist Quran exegetical tradition? And what are some of the tensions and ambiguities found in that tradition? These are the central questions addressed by Aisha Hidayatullah. Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Theology at the University of San Francisco in her path-clearing new book, Feminist Edges of the Quran, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. In this shining new book, Hidayatullah presents a detailed and nuanced explanation of the varied paradigms of Muslim feminist Quran exegesis, primarily, though not exclusively, focusing on the work of scholars in the U.S., She also considers and highlights some of the limitations of such feminist exegetical projects, concluding that perhaps patriarchal readings of the Qur'an cannot be entirely or conclusively dismissed as impossible. In this book, Hidayatullah seamlessly and brilliantly combines intellectual history, discursive analysis, and critical theological reflections. Written with exemplary clarity, Feminist Edges of the Qur'an introduces non-specialists to the fascinating yet complicated terrain of feminist and indeed modernist Qur'an exegesis, while offering specialists more familiar with this terrain, groundbreaking conceptual interventions and new avenues of thought and research. This incredibly lucid book should also work splendidly in undergraduate and graduate courses on the Qur'an, gender, feminist thought, Muslim Modernism, and Islam in America. Here now is my conversation with Professor Aisha Hidayatullah. Hello, Aisha. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you so much, Aisha, for your time and for this uh, wonderful book. As you know, we were talking before uh, we went on air. This is such a thoughtful, such a convincing uh, book, which really is a model for bringing together analytical work with critical reflections um, and the way that you bring these different uh, registers of thinking together is really quite a quite a masterpiece. It's really a model for this kind of a work and, and so lyrically and wonderfully written. So pleasure reading the book and really look forward uh, to our conversation uh, today. Uh, well, thanks very much, Shari, uh, Shari, Shari for having me on uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. I, I think this is 
such a great forum for promoting better understanding of new scholarship and to actually hear scholars reflect on their work. So I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. So we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first uh, question is always biographical, uh, where we are interested in the journey of our authors, how they became scholars of Islam and Muslim societies. Uh, so uh, could you share with us, Ayesha, your story? How did you become a scholar of Islam? And how did you come to write this particular book? Okay. Uh, well, I was raised in an immigrant Muslim community in the U.S., and my undergrad was at Emory University in Atlanta, which had and still has a very vibrant Muslim Students Association. Um, and college was the place where I, for the first time, really began to ask questions about how Muslims know what we know about Islam. So that critical engagement with Islam for me emerged at the same time as my first introduction to feminist theory. So one of my majors in college was actually women's studies. And it was that convergence that I think was key. The awakening of my feminist consciousness at the same time that I developed this very active curiosity about Islam in community with uh, other young Muslims. And once I became involved in the leadership of the MSA, I was actually encountering firsthand in a very practical sense questions about female leadership and authority in Islam, but without really having the language for that yet. So I distinctly remember, you know, being in my dorm room at Emory at 19 years old and opening up Leila Ahmed's Women and Gender in Islam for the first time, which is, of course, a classic text now. And around then, this would have been 1998, 1999, the MSA at Emory had also invited uh, or had invited uh, Aziz Al-Hibri and Rifat Hassan to speak at the university. And right around then, Oxford published Amina Wadud's Quran and Woman in the U.S., which I also read with just absolute wonder. Um, and I was exhilarated by what I was reading and hearing for the first time. These were scholars uh, that were creating new possibilities for doing feminist scholarship on Islam from a pro-faith perspective, and it was life-changing. Um, and so I was inspired to pursue a career in scholarship on this topic, and I knew I wanted to understand how feminist readings of the Quran in particular worked. So I started my religious studies MA PhD and wrote my dissertation studying the interpretive methods of feminist exegesis of the Quran. So that's how I got started into scholarship. Um, in terms of this particular book, I'll say that after I finished my dissertation, I actually began to see the body of feminist exegetical works quite differently. And by then I was faculty at University of San Francisco, which is where I am now. Um, and it took me some time to be able to articulate what that difference was. I decided to take some time during the process of converting the dissertation into a book to really critically re-examine many of the assumptions of the feminist readings I had studied. 
And as I explain in the preface of Feminist Edges, I was quite ambivalent about publishing the critical portions of the book. For one thing, it's very difficult to critique the work of one's mentors. And also the place that I come to is very sensitive, fraught territory, because it involves questioning some of the fundamental assumptions about egalitarian readings of the Qur'an and the justice of the text. But it seemed to me very important to pursue this line of questioning. So even though it was difficult, I went ahead and included most of the new writing I had done. Um, and that was ultimately what made the end of the book take a very different turn from the original dissertation on which it's based. So let us uh, begin by discussing the title of your book to get a sense of the larger conceptual apparatus and the kinds of questions that undergird uh, this uh, this project. Uh, the title is Feminist Edges of the Quran. Uh, could you explain and elaborate what you mean by the idea of edges uh, in this title and how does this relate to the question of religious authority, which seems to be quite central uh, to the uh, conceptual underpinnings of this book? Could you give us a sense of what the idea of edges is doing uh, for you theoretically and in terms of what you are trying to accomplish in this book? Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, when I was working on the manuscript, I was having a conversation with our colleague Peter Wright at uh, Colorado College. He mentioned uh, Richard Bullitt's notion of the center and edge of Islamic tradition. And we can sort of talk about it as elite religious authorities defining what is supposedly authentic or authoritative in Islam, essentially drawing a line around that with what's inside being a kind of center. And then non-conforming or non-compliant Muslim thought and practice existing on the sort of edge of that center. So the edge is that place of challenges to the center and is that place that has the possibility of eventually inspiring change in Islam. So that concept appealed to me as a way to also talk about what is going on in terms of feminist exegesis of the Quran. So the edge I'm identifying is the one where feminist readings are challenging authoritative Quranic interpretations and even challenging what the basis of the authority of those interpretations is in the first place. And even though I see this feminist edge of Quranic interpretation as a place of challenge, I don't see it necessarily as one of some kind of permanent marginality. It's an edge that could perhaps move to challenge the interpretive tradition and transform that authoritative center. Now, while I am in some ways very skeptical about that, and I talk about that in the book, I think it's important to at least imagine the edge as one that could be dynamic. So that is one sense in which I'm talking about an edge, um, a site of dynamic interpretive possibility. But there's also another sense in which I'm also talking about an edge, not just the edge of the interpretive tradition of the Quran, but the edge of the Quranic text itself. And here I'm speaking of an edge in terms of 
a possible limitation. Um, in the critical portion of the book, I do question the commensurability of the Quran with contemporary ideals of feminist justice. So in that sense, I am asking if we have perhaps reached some kind of limit in terms of our ability to read the Quran in line with feminist values. I'm asking if we have reached the edge of the Quranic text, that is the edge of what the text can offer definitively in our search for feminist justice in this vein of scholarship. Okay, the bulk of uh, your book contains fascinating discussions of the thought of some prominent uh, Muslim feminist uh, exegetes, uh, primarily in the U.S., but not limited uh, to the U.S. So could you briefly describe for our listeners the, the intellectual terrain of Muslim feminist exegesis that you explore in this book? And could you also talk a bit about uh, some of the conceptual challenges which are attached to using the category of Islamic feminism? Uh, you engage in a very interesting discussion on this question of Islamic feminism as a category also in the book. So could you combine those two lines of thought um, mm-hmm. to give us a sense of the larger intellectual terrain that occupies this project? Mm-hmm. So I look at feminist readings of the Quran mostly published in the U.S. since the 1990s. Um, and I focus mainly on the works of Rifat Hassan, Aziz al-Hibri, Amana Wadud, and Asma Berlas. Uh, Hassan started her work in the late 70s, and Al-Hibri and Wadud in the 80s, and then Barlas comes quite a bit later. Uh, but at least with the first three scholars, in part, what's informing their work was the rise of Islamism and the Islamic revival in different parts of the Muslim-majority world, which, of course, had created a wave of particularly oppressive treatment of women in many cases. Um, because such measures against women were being undertaken in the name of Islam, it became important to counter those interpretations of Islam to go back to the same sources being used for that purpose and to reinterpret them to show another way of reading them. Um, There's a whole wave of Muslim women's activism that you see developing. And then by the 1990s, you see that work also emerging in the academy. So that is the more immediate context that helps us map these feminist readings. But you're also seeing some of the influences of Islamic modernism here. Um, the trend in Muslim thought that emerged in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Um, Probably the most important feature of that in terms of what we're talking about here is the modernist subversion of traditional religious authorities. So challenging the ulama's exclusive authority to interpret the Quran. So these readings are doing much the same thing in um, and in particular, challenging exclusively male authority to interpret the Quran. They're calling for the validity of multiple readings of the Quran, thinking about what elements of the Quranic text might be historically contingent, um, and thinking about the reader's historical historical perspective in, in interpreting the text. So the works I look at treat the Quran 
as the divine word of God and take the position that gender equality is supported by the text. But that equality has been covered over or distorted by the biases of a male tradition of Quranic exegesis and contemporary abuses of the text. So they're seeking to recover the gender egalitarianism that they see at the core of the Quran. They're arguing that gender equality can be found if we reread the text carefully. Uh, but while these works are criticizing the tradition of Quranic interpretation, they're also claiming their own place in that tradition. So it's not a full disavowal. It's actually looking to claim one's own place in that tradition of tafsir or exegesis, saying we're going to use the same sources, uh, using many of the same tools of classical exegesis, albeit modified by modernist influences, and do our own tafsir that retrieves the egalitarianism of the text. But to go back to the second part of your question about the challenges of the category of Islamic feminism, these efforts have to be named very strategically because of the baggage of feminism, of course. The history of colonial feminism where violence against Muslims is framed as a civilizing mission, and of course part of that mission is to help save Muslim women from supposedly the, the oppressive bonds of Muslim culture, means that women become repositories for what's imagined as some kind of Muslim essence that is being violated by this aggression. So feminism, whenever it's invoked, is inextricably connected to that history. And so feminism, more often than not, tends to evoke defensive responses in many Muslim communities and accusations that feminist movements are the effect of corrupting and contaminating foreign influences and an extension of Western aggression against Islam. So you often see a distance taken from the terms of feminism in these works because of the way that that can deplete the credibility and authority of this intellectual work in Muslim communities. You see less an invocation of feminism in these works and more a claim um, that their approaches to the Qur'an are fully internal to the Islamic tradition, that their readings are authentic and true to Islam. But I, as an author reflecting on the works, still use the, the term feminist to describe their works, to emphasize the epistemological challenge they pose to male power and male-centered readings of the Qur'an. So even though that's not the term that's being used a lot by the scholars themselves, I actually find the term useful. So one of the things uh, that I found uh, really helpful uh, in this book, and I think that makes it very reader-friendly also, is that you very clearly and systematically uh, categorize uh, the different paradigms of uh, feminist uh, Quranic interpretive uh, traditions and trends. Uh, and you specifically identify three major paradigms that you call historical, contextual, intratextual, and the Tawhidic paradigm. So with your permission, let's shift to these different paradigms of uh, feminist uh, Quran interpretation 
that you identify and discuss. Uh, let's begin with the historical, contextual, and intratextual uh, methods. Uh, could you explain the key features of these uh, two methods, and uh, perhaps with the help of an example? Sure. So I first talk about the historical contextualization method, and this is one that employs three major kind of maneuvers in reading Quranic verses. So identifying the asbab al-nuzul or the occasions of revelation for the verses. Also differentiating between descriptive and prescriptive verses. That is those verses that seem to only describe uh, the practices of the immediate seventh century audience of revelation as opposed to those verses that are actually prescribing those practices for others as well. And also differentiating between universal and particular verses. In other words, verses that seem to apply to specific situations and those that apply generally. The other kind of less pointed strategy also in this category is to notice how historical biases about gender color the interpretive arguments of past exegetes of the Quran. So one of many examples of this method's application um, is sort of looking at verse 4-3. Uh, that is verse 3 of chapter 4, which is often thought of as the polygamy verse, right, and has been used to sanction the practice of men taking multiple wives. So Feminist readings will look closely at the text and the context of Revelation and say that this verse is really concerned with the just treatment of orphans under very specific conditions. In the context of warfare where there were casualties, which resulted in orphans who were vulnerable, the purpose is to prevent the mishandling of orphans' wealth by their guardians. So up to four female orphans could be married to ensure their just treatment and the proper handling of their wealth within the structure of marriage, which safeguards that. So in a feminist reading, the historical context of the verse tells us that the verse is about ensuring justice for orphans rather than simply allowing men to satisfy their desires for multiple wives. and that its application needs to be understood in terms of a particular kind of context rather than a general allowance. So there are limitations on this versus application based on context. This is not some blanket allowance. The intertextual method, um, and I take this terminology from both Asma Barlas and Amina Wadud, is focused on reading the Qur'an holistically. So tracing the use of terms in various instances across the text of the Qur'an, comparing verses on the same theme instead of reading them in isolation, and reading verses in light of what's seen as the Qur'an's overall trend toward justice and equality. So for example, taking verses such as uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, uh, which is interpreted as an indication of the equality of men and women in creation, or verses 971, 
or 3335, which are interpreted as indicators of men and women's equal moral capacity. And using them to establish that the Quran advocates male-female equality as an overall principle. So then, based on the idea of the whole Quran's internal coherence and consistency, any interpretation of other verses concerning women cannot then contradict that overall principle of equality. Um, the same thing is done with verses such as 30:21 to uphold a principle of mutual care and tranquility in marriage. Um, that other verses have to be read in line with that ideal. So this becomes a very important move. The exegetes are then able to argue, for example, that something like verse 2, 228 on the greater degree of rights men have over women can't possibly be a categorical statement of men's superiority over women. The Quran can't contradict itself and it must be read holistically. So let us uh, shift our attention to the third paradigm, what you call the Tawhidic paradigm. Uh, could you discuss that a bit? And what kind of a theological argument uh, does this paradigm rest on? Mm-hmm. The Tawhidic paradigm is a phrase coined by Amina Wadud that uh, invokes the concept of Tawhid, that is God's unity, God's indivisibility, God's incomparability. Um, it's not always called the Tawhidic paradigm by the other scholars, but the basic pattern of the ideas is always there. The major ideas here are that because God is one, sexism actually figures as a form of idolatry in, in a certain sense, since what sexism often does is attribute godlike roles to men over women. Then the other major thing is that because God is one and no other is comparable to God in knowledge, Human beings are always limited by their imperfect capacities of understanding, and their readings of the Quran are therefore always incomplete, always imperfect, always constructed through perspectives that are limited by their times and places and by their humanness overall. So they can never pronounce a final interpretation of the Quran. Doing that would be claiming to have perfect knowledge, which belongs only to God, and would be tantamount to putting themselves in the role of God. So overall, with the Tawhidic paradigm, feminist readings are using the concept of Tawhid to claim that any assertion of male superiority in Quranic interpretation is in fact an act of shirk or a violation of the oneness of God. Uh, That violates the fundamental theological tenet of Islam. So, for example, interpretations that insist on wives' obedience to their husbands are a violation of Tawheed. Men cannot wield godlike authority over women. Uh, women are obedient to God, not to other human beings. So um, there's that. And feminist readings also demand that clear distinctions be made between the text of the Qur'an, and its interpretation by male authorities. So the Qur'an should be treated as open to continual interpretation as human contexts evolve. In other words, 
we must never make the mistake of equating an authoritative interpretation of the Quran with God's word. So this part of the paradigm opens up the way for feminist readings. So let us now uh, shift our attention to the critical uh, part of the book, uh, where you critique some of the, these paradigms and identify some of the limitations that you find in these paradigms. So what are some of the central interpretive limitations that you find in these different uh, Muslim feminist exegetical approaches and methods? What leaves you dissatisfied uh, with these methods? Sure. So in 2006, with the publication of Amina Wadud's Inside the Gender Jihad and Kisha Ali's Sexual Ethics in Islam, who's a later scholar in this group, um, who's been a major influence on my work, I became concerned with the problem of cases where the application of the feminist exegetical strategies did not seem to successfully rescue the Quranic text from meanings that are detrimental to women. So, for example, as Ali points out, certain verses on sexual matters, such as chapter 2's verses 187, 222, and 223, on men approaching their wives sexually on nights of fasting, after menstruation, or as their tilth, seem to direct uh, to contain directives that are actually prescribing male sexual agency over female bodies and rendering women as passive parties in the in the realm of sexuality. Amina Wadud also revisited her reading of verse 434, which contains an apparent allowance for striking one's wife, finding that she was unable to get around the possibility of it being used to sanction violence. So in these cases, no matter how much you take into account historical context or attempt to read these verses intratextually alongside other verses, you're still unable to rule out meanings that are either male-centered or even unjust to women. So even though feminist interpretive methods are successful in the case of many other verses. In the case of some verses like these, prescriptions for male dominance just can't be interpreted out of the text. So the trouble is that, um, and here I'm agreeing with Ali and uh, another scholar, Raja Rooney, that in order to continue to maintain that the entire Qur'an supports a notion of male-female equality in line with contemporary sensibilities, you end up having to downplay or ignore certain verses and at times read the text apologetically. So I end up zeroing in on this central unresolved problem of works of feminist Quranic exegesis, the problem of insisting that all sexist or harmful meanings of the Quran result from interpretation of the text rather than the text itself. So this is a very difficult bind. These scholars, for the most part, uh, along with the vast majority of Muslims, hold that the Quran is the direct and inerrant word of God. And so when you have this belief, along with the belief that male-female equality is something that is divinely ordained, this means that all the meanings of the text that 
seem to be contrary to the ideals of egalitarianism must be the result of faulty human interpretation. So the text itself can't be the source of those meanings. It can't itself be faulted. So this bind ends up creating contradictions and some untenable claims about the text that ultimately undercut the project of feminist exegesis of the Quran in major ways. So in the, in the last uh, chapter of your book, uh, you shift from the third person uh, to the first person and uh, share and present in much more explicit ways your own views on the juncture that you find Muslim feminist tafsir to be situated in. Uh, so can you share with us your thoughts on what you think are the major impasses and contradictions that confront feminist engagements with the Quran? And what do you propose as possible ways of confronting such conceptual challenges and roadblocks? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in Chapter 8, I consider the possibility that contemporary ideals of male-female equality might not be ultimately reconcilable with the Quranic text. Um, in order to explain how I come to this position, I use a kind of shorthand for two kinds of verses feminist exegesis has confronted. So we could call one group the mutuality verses, right? Those verses that seem to be promoting our ideals of male-female inclusiveness and reciprocity, kindness and respect for women. And then we could talk about the hierarchy verses for shorthand, right? Verses that seem to endorse male control over women and hierarchical male-female relations. What feminist scholarship has done essentially is tried to recover the meanings of the mutuality verses and argue that these verses signal the text's larger universal principles and the Qur'an's overall trajectory toward equality. And when it came to hierarchy verses, feminist scholarship tended to argue that their meanings apply only to specific historical contexts, that they're not saying anything overall about the value of women. So what basically happens is the prioritization of mutuality verses over hierarchy verses based on the principle that the Qur'an cannot contradict itself. But I actually question the assumption that there is necessarily a contradiction or a dissonance between hierarchy and mutuality versus in the first place. Both kind of verses are there, but they might only appear to me as contradictory because of my own contemporary feminist perspective. So that dissonance may not have been a necessary feature of the pre-modern views of gender relations that inform the revelatory context of the Quran. So I'm concerned that this notion that male-female mutuality contradicts male-female hierarchy might be particular to our contemporary perspective as feminist readers, which then makes the attempt to resolve these two tendencies 
in the Quran problematic. Um, we may be trying to resolve something in the Quran that may not in the end be possible to resolve because perhaps there is nothing to resolve. In the revelatory context of the Quran, there may not have been a necessary contradiction between the values of male-female mutuality and hierarchy. It's possible that mutuality and hierarchy could exist harmoniously in the Quran. It's possible that according to the logics of the revelatory context, that men and women could have been, for example, created from the same soul, created as mates of tranquility and mercy for one another, created as moral equals, at the same time that men could reign over women. Maybe there is no necessary contradiction between notions of love, respect, and mutual kindness, and notions of female passivity and male dominance. It could be that later views of human autonomy and relationships make that seem contradictory, but we don't know that that necessarily applies to the revelatory context of the Quran. So when we take this possibility into account, it makes it difficult to fully and definitively justify the interpretive maneuver of saying that the Quran privileges mutuality versus what may be happening is a projection of contemporary sensibilities onto the text and an attribution of egalitarian values to the text that may not be totally defendable on the basis of the text itself. I am not sure that there is clear textual support for treating male-female mutuality and equality as an overall overarching value of the Quran. Mutuality could simply be one set of values that exists alongside another that does not necessarily rule out hierarchical values. So I'm not sure that we can find definitive support for our demands for male-female equality in the Quranic text itself. We know that we prioritize mutuality verses over hierarchy verses, but I don't know if we can say that the Quran itself is doing that. Now, even if you say that the Quran is pointing to the realization of justice beyond its own language, uh, which is framed by its patriarchal historical context, we still end up demanding kinds of justice that are so far beyond those that are directly supportable by the text that we end up having to minimize or disregard much of the content of the Quranic text in order to continue to say that the Quran is guaranteeing feminist justice. So then what's happening is that we're, again, not really basing our demands for gender equality directly or solely on the text. It seems to me that we're quite often taking our cues from outside the text 
in doing feminist readings, even if we've not admitted to doing so. So the equality we seek is grounded in a conception of justice that perhaps lies outside the text. And I think it's important to point out that when you're saying that we need to move past historically contingent elements of the text, you're not just moving past these textual elements, you're also moving toward things other than the text. So in feminist interpretation of the Quran, I think there's often been a kind of unwillingness to fully consider this possibility. And I think this is because of that bind I had mentioned earlier. How can you possibly account for unjust meanings that cannot be explained away by these feminist techniques and still uphold the divinity of the entire Quranic text? This bind was leading to apologetic readings that were sometimes forcing feminist interpretation to try to sort of make the text say what it perhaps does not and to kind of unsay what it perhaps does. The other major thing that this way of proceeding has been uh, been doing is uh, reinforcing the authority of the Quranic text at the expense of our own authority as human interpreters. And that's key for me. I think the best way out of this bind, even though it's a very difficult path to pursue, is to open, is to, is to, is to own up to the humanness of the interpretive endeavors of feminist exegesis and to assert our own authority as human interpreters seeking divine guidance rather than constantly trying to argue that the text is saying these things for us. I think we have to imagine new ways of understanding the divinity of the text and the nature of its revelation and pursue a vision of the Quran's divinity that allows us to call for justice outside the text pronouncement sometimes rather than trying to force the text to say things or unsay things to align it with our sense of justice. And I, I call for this as an act of faith and an act of conscience as a Muslim. I think there are ways to begin to do this while maintaining our belief in the divine revelation of the Quran if we're able to rethink the nature of God's speech. Um, for example, in some of the ways Nasser Hamid Abu Zaid did in his work on the Quran as a living discourse, this interactive dialogue between it and its addressees. Uh, some of what Wadud says in Inside the Gender Jihad already points us um, in that direction. So if we are able to integrate that kind of work into feminist exegesis, I think we'll be able to still uphold our commitments as believing Muslims while also being fully open to the full array of critical feminist readings of the Quranic text. Now, one of the major strengths of this book uh, that makes it such a landmark uh, publication uh, is the way that it talks to multiple audiences and multiple fields, including Islamic studies, uh, American Islam, 
the study of gender uh, uh, and Quranic studies and so on. Uh, and when a book is making such important and bold arguments and uh, has such multiple audiences, it also has possibilities of misinterpretation and so on. Uh, so, Aisha, uh, what would you anticipate as some possible misinterpretations uh, of your book and how would you correct or respond uh, to those possible uh, misinterpretations? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, some readers could misinterpret the book to mean that I am desacralizing the Quran, uh, that I am discounting its divinity, that I'm saying it's irretrievably patriarchal and unjust to women, that uh, I'm saying that reading the Quran is in, in, in feminist ways is futile or pointless, both on the academic and activist levels. But what I'm really saying is that methodologically, we've reached some points of irresolvable contradiction, that we've come to some theoretical impasses, and that it's time to struggle with the Qur'an as Muslim feminists differently. And it is a struggle. It is difficult. It is theologically destabilizing and disorienting. But I'm certainly not saying that the Qur'an is not a divine revelation. To the contrary, I am trying to find a way to respect the Qur'an's divinity and also read it in viable feminist ways. What I'm doing is arguing against a kind of textual ventriloquism that plague some of the methodology of how feminist exegesis has been reading the Qur'an, where we want to make it seem that the text is saying feminist things for us. And I'm asking us to revise what I see as a flawed and counterproductive interpretive methodology. So I'm not asking us to do away with the Qur'anic text or the endeavor to read the Qur'an in feminist ways. I'm asking us to revise our methodology. Now, you know, just as I don't argue that the text is definitively feminist, I also don't argue that the text is definitively patriarchal either. It's not that hierarchical verses are the real voice of God and mutuality verses aren't, or vice versa. It's not that the Qur'an is absolutely just or unjust to women. This, this is a kind of proof texting, and I'm against that. Um, we are the ones saying things about the Qur'an as feminist readers looking for justice. We are certainly prioritizing parts of the Qur'an that indicate egalitarianism. But I'm not sure that we can be certain that the Qur'anic text itself is prioritizing that. We can only be sure that it is we who are doing that. We are doing the speaking. I'm calling for an honesty about that and for us to uphold our human authority to interpret this divine text in ways that promote greater justice. 
So Aisha, as our uh, time is uh, drawing uh, to an end, uh, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, what are you working on these days? What are the kinds of things we can anticipate reading from you and learning from you uh, in the coming uh, months and years? Sure. Um, I actually didn't publish in the book some of my thoughts about how we might begin to reimagine the nature of the Quran's divinity and revelation. So I'm taking some time to develop that more fully. Um, I'd like to spend some time with the philosophical tradition very carefully. So that's something I hope to ponder over the next several years. Um, In the meantime, I'm actually thinking through now some of the peculiarities of contemporary Muslims reading practices of the Quran. Um, What's interesting and in some ways Uh, strange about what kinds of things we're looking for in the text, about what makes us respond to certain things in the text in perhaps some historically peculiar ways. Um, So there's that. And then also because of my training in feminist theory, the study of race in conjunction with gender has always been very important to me. So I'm now also starting to develop some work on race and gender actually in the context of Uh, conversion to Islam in the U.S., looking particularly at conversion narratives. So hopefully more to come on that soon. Feminist Edges of the Quran by Aisha Hidayatullah, Associate Professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of San Francisco, uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. Thank you so much, Aisha, for such a wonderful book and for this conversation. Really enjoyed reading your book, learned a lot from it, and it really uh, was a pleasure uh, talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Shirley. So this was my conversation with Professor Aisha Hidayatullah about her wonderful and brilliant new book, Feminist Edges of the Quran. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off.